Good evening. It is good to see each of you. And again, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you. It is an honor to have you. It's an encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. If you would be open your Bibles to 2 John. 2 John. It's one of the last few books in your Bible. And we'll be looking for, at a real short epistle, a short letter that John wrote tonight. As we get ready to think about the wonderful opportunity that we have this week to be amidst some of the best people in this area as we think about our young people and the excitement that they bring to us and the encouragement that they bring to us. What a wonderful time that uh, we have each year in Vacation Bible School, and we look so forward to it again this year. I want to encourage you to remember the announcements about things taking place after services, not only the, the delicious food, if you're visiting especially, we invite you to that, but also if you're a member here, keep in mind the opportunities to move things around and help prepare. Uh, many hands make light work, few hands make heavy work, so let's make sure that, that uh, we make it as light as possible tonight. And also I want to ask uh, several of our young people, if we could get about 10 of you guys to commit to being at the middle school where our vacation Bible school will be. Uh, tomorrow for the 6th through 12th grade. If I could get about 10 of you guys to commit to being there, about 8 or 8.15 to help set up the place, that would be tremendous. We can't get in there until 8 in the morning. And so if you will see me after services, I'm going to have to have you to sign your name uh, saying that you'll be there and we can't leave here tonight till we get at least 10. Uh, so we look forward to that and what a wonderful opportunity we have. Little Billy was really proud of the fact that he made the cupcakes and he was he was serving his his class at Vacation Bible School, these cupcakes that he had made. And so as the teacher was taking a bite, she commented how delicious it was. And he again replied, I made them all by myself. And wanting to really praise him, she said, well, how did you get the icing to be so smooth? And she took another bite. And he says, well, now you use a knife, but then that makes little ridges in it. And then you lick the ridges right out. Now, when you think about children, those are the kind of things that we have to look forward to this week. They just bring a lot of joy. They bring a lot of excitement into our life. And that's why you ask almost any adult that's thinking clearly, do you love VBS? And adults perhaps love it even more than the kids because it brings a wonderful time in our life to see the youth, to see their excitement, to see uh, just... The possibilities of the future as we see our young people. And we're so thankful to have that opportunity this week. You know, oftentimes we think about how important it is to get the gospel out even to the young people. And our minds immediately think about teenagers. I want to read to you a research from Barna. As we think about even younger than teenagers are really the times that we need to be really getting the truth out. A person's moral foundation, this is the result of Barna Group's study, a person's moral foundation are laid by the age of, many would probably say 13 or 15. No, they found that their moral foundation is laid by the age of 9. VBS teachers, I want you to think about that as you work with their young people tomorrow. They're already learning by the age of nine what they will say is right and what they will say is wrong. And they're putting that foundation in place by the age of nine. Most people make a decision regarding their, the personal significance of Christ's death and resurrection by the age of twelve. In most cases, people's spiritual beliefs are formed while they are still in their preteen years. 
That's three of the findings that he offers in his study. As he is saying that we, as we think about spreading the gospel, teenagers are a wonderful, wonderful potential in spreading the gospel. But we must realize that the preteens are such an important age group also. And that's what we're going to try to do this week, is to reach the preteens and to reach the teenagers and to help them learn more about their God and let them know that there are a group of God's people meeting right here in this facility, in this building, that loves them and wants them to love God. If you're looking with me in Second John, I want us to begin with a verse that's not on a slide, and then many of the other verses tonight will be on the slide. But I want you to notice as we read Second John, there's only one chapter in Second John, and look at verse 8. He says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive full reward. Isn't it a shame when you lose what you work for? Here he's talking about the fact that he had worked to build souls and to build Christians and to point people toward God. And what a shame it is when we do that, but then we lose what we work for. I want you young people to realize tonight that what we want more than anything is we want you to be faithful to God. And we're willing to put whatever investment of time and energy and heart into making sure that we as a congregation and we as individual families and then just individuals that we give of our time, we give of our heart, that we love you and that we want you to make it to heaven. We want to make it to heaven and we want you to make it to heaven. And if you don't make it to heaven, we would consider that just what John was saying here. We've lost something we've worked for. All of us have been a part of something where we've put several hours of investment into it and then we've lost it. If you've worked on computers, I would guess everyone that's worked on computers know what it is to work on a document for several hours and then something happened and you lose that document. And it's really a feeling inside that kind of turns you inside out for a few moments as you think, surely I didn't lose all that. Surely all that time isn't wasted. Think how much worse it is than just losing a document whenever there's a soul. And you've encouraged that soul and you've grown with that soul only to find out that later that soul has stopped growing and that soul has fallen away. Imagine, if you will, your family. Maybe you're a family of one. Maybe you're a family of two, a family of four, a family of six. Just imagine your family. What would it be like to be in a disastrous situation where you had to be rescued? Can you imagine if you are, let's say, a family of five? Can you imagine having a smile on your face when finally you've been brought to safety and you look around and you say, well, at least three of the five made it. No family would say that. Immediately, the only concentration would be, where are the other two? We have to turn back. We have to do something. John is writing this epistle because he wants to make sure, he wants to make sure that none are lost. He wants to encourage everyone he can. Now, let's go back and let's look at verse 1. In 2 John, verse 1 says, the elder. Why does he call himself this? Probably not as much because of an office. He's probably referring to himself as this because he is the oldest and the only apostle at this time, probably that is alive. And so he's referring to his age. And he says, to the elect lady and to her children. Now, it is always debated. You could pick up commentaries and and written by great men. And one commentary is going to say this has to be that he's writing to a prominent congregation 
and to the children. In other words, the idea of a lady here is that the church is oftentimes referred to as the bride of Christ. Other uh, commentators that are, that are very wise men will say, oh no, he's writing here to a specific woman that was very well known and he's addressing her children here. For our lesson tonight, it really doesn't matter which way it is because the important thing is he's writing for concern of souls and he addresses the congregation and her children or he addresses the, church, the, the lady and her children. And so tonight we want to think about what is it that we as a congregation can do to encourage our children? Where is it that we should walk? How is it that we should love and etc.? So let's read as we're about to read the first four verses. I want you to note the word truth here. We're going to see the word truth five times in four verses. So he says to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us and will with us forever. Then he mentions three tremendous uh, characteristics here that God offers us. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And then he says, after this greetings, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandments from the Father. There's something he's happy about here. This is really the way we close this morning's lesson, except it was Paul writing that lesson of how he wanted the children, he wanted his children to walk worthy of the calling of God. Now another apostle has a very similar plea, except he states it in different words. Here he says, we have great rejoicing when we find what? We find children walking in truth. Now let's think about the way truth was used here as we go back to the previous verses. Look again, if you will, with me at verse 1. Why did he love this lady and her children? He loved them, as he says, of whom I love in truth. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes we'll meet someone that is a faithful Christian and simply because they are a faithful Christian and we are a faithful Christian, we don't know each other very well at all. But there's immediately a common bond. There's immediately a love there. And someone says, how can that happen? It is because we love the truth. In other words, that's what he's saying here to this woman. He says, I love you and your children if for no other reason because I love the truth. And then he refers at the rest of verse 1 and everyone else that loves the truth loves you. Now, why would that be? He makes it real clear as if that wasn't easy enough to understand. Look what he said again in verse 2. He says, because. In other words, someone would say, why do you love them? Why do other people that love the truth love them? Because, verse 2... Of the truth which abides in us. When the truth is in us. We live in a world where the truth is not. It's refreshing to run upon someone that the truth abides in them also. I hope you and I don't take for granted the fact of Christian friends. I hope we don't take for granted the fact of Christian fellowship. It's a blessing when you stand for the truth and you die for the truth and the person sitting beside you would do the same thing. It's that kind of relationship that's special. Now let's note this before we move on. I think some people sometimes that are lukewarm, they don't really live the truth. 
and their reputation is out, that they don't live the truth. They find themselves feeling like an outsider, even though they're in the assembly, they feel like an outsider. And it kind of makes them angry. Why, why, doesn't, why don't people love me the way they love so-and-so over there? Friends, please try to put this puzzle together in your mind. It may be that the reason so-and-so appears to be loved more, it may be because they're really living in the truth. And it may be the one that's sharing that love with them is also living in the truth. And it's not that this other person out here is not loved. They're agape but they don't share that common love of the truth. And I want to I beg you tonight... If you've lived the Christian life more as an outsider, more as someone that's lukewarm, you don't know what you're missing by sharing in a fellowship of true, genuine love that's found in the truth. Now, not only because other Christians share in that, but did you notice in verse 3 why it is so beautiful? He mentions things that we must have in our life. Grace, mercy, and peace. We need God's graciousness in dealing with our sin. We need God's mercy whenever we find ourselves in the misery of sin. And when that grace and God's mercy has cleansed us of our sin, what do we experience? We experience peace. Someone says, I want that peace. I want that grace. I want that mercy. Where is it found? It's found in God the Father and the Son. Now what abides in the Son? Notice as we read the end of verse 3. The Son of the Father in truth and love. You see, it just doesn't stop. John says, I want to tell you why I love this elect lady and her children. She lives her life in the truth. And John says, I live my life in the truth, and so I love her. And everyone else that lives their life in the truth loves her. And all of us are experiencing together God's grace and mercy and peace because Jesus Christ is in truth also. This very same author wrote in John, the first chapter in verse 14, about Jesus coming to this earth. And he said that he was full of grace and truth. You see there, we see the fullness of Jesus. Now, what's the summary of all this introduction? The summary is that in verse 4, what we've already mentioned, where he says, Now, with great rejoicing, I have because you, or the children, have walked in truth. What a joy it brings to us when we run into individuals years later and we find out they're still living for the Lord. I want to share something with our young people that I don't know if it will really make sense. But when you graduate from high school and you go to college, people that love you and they meet up with you and it may be a year later and it may be four years later and it may be six years later. You know what they really want to know when they say to you, hey, where are you worshiping now? They want to know, do you still love the truth? Because when we find out that one of the ones that we love still loves the truth, what great rejoicing it is. And how painful it is to know that one of our young people that grew up here and 
we worked with them and we loved them and we tried to encourage them and we find out that they no longer share the same love for the truth that we share. John writes a beautiful letter. Let's see a second thing that he says in verse 5. He says, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So with love, he's saying to the children here, walk in the truth. But then he says, love one another. And he says, now this isn't a new commandment. You see, from the Old Testament, we see the commandment to love one another. So when this same writer wrote in John the 13th chapter about Jesus giving a new commandment, the part that was new was not love one another. That was old. The part that was new is when he said, love one another, as Jesus said, as I have loved you. That's the new part of the old commandment. And so I want to encourage all of us, our young people, I want to encourage all of us here. Let's go back to an old commandment and let's love one another. And whenever we apply it, we make it new in our life. And what a beautiful thought that is. If I said to you right now, is marriage new? No, marriage isn't new. There have been billions of marriages. Marriage goes back to the very beginning of mankind. But you know what? When a young man and a young woman experience that for the first time in their life, It's new to them. What if we say the birth of a baby? Is that something new? No, that's been happening billions and billions of times since the beginning of time. That's something pretty old. How many of us that we've had our children would say, that's awesome. That is amazing. Why? Because when we experience it, it's as if it is something new. I want to challenge you. Let's go out this week. And let's love one another as if it were something brand new. Let's go out and experience what it is to truly pour out agape for one another. Now, we're going to have an opportunity to do that this week. Many of us will be working with young people all week long. And what many of those young people that are coming from the community are going to know about this church is whatever they see this week. Let's make sure that we show them That we truly are a congregation that loves one another. Look with me, if you will, to verse 6. In verse 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So first he says, I want you to walk in truth. Next he says, I want you to love one another. And now he writes, and he says... I want you to love, and here he's talking about loving God. And if we love God, what are we going to do? Now he goes back to describing life as a walk again. He says, I want you to walk in my commandments. This same writer in John the 14th chapter, listen to what he says in John 14 and 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we prove our love for God by how we keep His commandments. In your mind, I'd like for you to get out a piece of paper and I would like for you to write this simple statement. I strive to keep all the commandments of God. Can you write that and it be true? Can you write that to God? I strive to keep all the commandments of God. Not half and not most or not when I'm around a certain group. 
If I'm alone where no one else sees, no other person sees, or if I'm away from Mount Juliet and a thousand miles away, can I say home and abroad, day and night, 24-7, 365, can I say I strive to keep all the commandments of God? Do you realize if I have to say no to that, that the truth is I don't love God? Because that's how we prove our love for God. We prove our love for God by keeping His commandments. Now let's conclude this lesson as we look to verse 9. In verse 9, we read a very powerful passage where he says, Whoever, isn't that wonderful? It's open to anyone. The Great Commission is for all creation. Whoever transgresses and does not abide, that's an important word here, does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, he's talked about our walk, walking in truth. He's talked about loving one another. Then he comes back around and says, now let's walk in the commandments because that's where we prove our love for God. And then finally, he rests here. He says, do you abide in the doctrine? The doctrine means teaching. Do we abide in the teaching of Jesus Christ? Now, you know, sometimes when we look the way words are used, it, it just becomes interesting. I want to share something to you that it's interesting. It helps me identify with this. If you've ever worked with inner cities, you know, the, the lingo is a little bit different. Those kids and those adults are not going to get in your van or your bus. They're not going to say, where do you live? Now, some of you already think in your mind, you know what they're going to say. They're going to get on your van or bus and they're going to say, where do you stay? Where do you stay? They don't mean like, where do you stay this afternoon? They're asking, where do you live? It's just they always use the word stay. Just like different areas of the country use words differently. That's interesting to me, especially when we think about this word abide. When you do a word study on this word abide, one of the first descriptions that's going to be is stay. The Lord is saying, I want you to stay in the doctrine of Christ. I want you to dwell in the doctrine of Christ. I want you to make your home in the doctrine of Christ. Can I honestly say that I want to stay here in the teachings of Jesus Christ and no person could persuade me to leave the teachings of Christ. No situation is, is, is so tempting that I'm going to turn my back on the teachings of Christ. It's so important to me that I want to make sure that I learn the teachings of Christ so I can make sure that I'm living in the teachings of Christ. In 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, he speaks to the young man, Timothy, and in verse 12, he tells him to be an example of the believers. Notice what he says to give attention to in verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Why did Paul tell the young man to give attention to the doctrine of Christ? Because that's where young men and elderly men, young women and elderly women, and everybody else between are to abide. That's where we are to stay. And if we don't stay in the teachings of Jesus Christ, we don't have God, the Father, or the Son. Friends, it's important to God that His message to us be important to us. 
It's where we find our very identity. It's where we strive to live. Tonight, we look at a letter that's written to a lady and to her children. And it was a pretty simple plea. Simple to understand. Challenging to live out. Walk in the truth. Love one another. Walk in His commandments and make sure you don't ever move outside of the teachings of Jesus. Sounds like a lesson for adults to me. No. Barna Research would say, 1 Timothy 4 would teach, it's even the children younger than 12 that need to hear that lesson. Let's make sure we do everything this week to get that message across, to encourage kids to love God and want to serve Him. Tonight, how's your walk? Are you living your life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? If not, are you a believer? Are you willing to repent of sins, confess before men, be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins? If you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've stopped that walk in the truth, you're no longer walking by the commandments, you're not abiding in the doctrine, friend, please come back. Come back to Christ tonight. Make His way your way, His will your will. Submit to Him fully. If we can help you in any